It's been a controversial topic in Detroit for years, and today DWSD announced... There's two ways to, to tell every story. The short way and the long way. When it comes to Detroit's history of shutting off low-income people's water, here's the short way. Yes, Devin and Kimberly, if you guys recall, the city used to have an issue with water shutoffs, and officials are now hoping to change that with the Detroit Lifeline program. The long way, though, that's a messier story. It's one that involves a lot of open wounds, unaddressed hurt, and broken trust. It's got a plan, the Lifeline plan, that can only reach a fraction of the people in need, in a city and water department that have had money squeezed from them by every level of government. And it's a story that implicates the people in suburbs far outside the city limits and far away from the 141,000 households forced to live without running water over the last decade in the Great Lakes state's largest city. On a chilly March Tuesday, I make the 40-minute drive from my hometown, a college town called Ann Arbor on the western fringe of Detroit suburbs, down I-94 to the east side of Detroit. I get off at Harper Avenue and make a few turns down side streets until I come to a brick house with a small community garden out back. I'm here to see a woman who I've wanted to meet for a long time. The local media has dubbed her the Water Warrior, but everyone who she's met knows to call her Mama Monica. I first met Monica Lewis Patrick through a news report while I was still in high school. We've spoken over email and phone calls for the past five years, ever since I sent her a blind email but this will be my first time meeting her in person. I quickly learned that Mama Monica is one of those people who mentors everyone she meets. I'm so proud of you and I just thank appreciate you. Thank it. you so much, Mama Monica. Yeah. It was so good to see you. you Take good care, man. okay? I will, thank you. And you tell your mama, you've been over here, you've been in good trouble. Yep. <laughs> you've been in good trouble. When I was just a kid, growing up in a college town in the Great Lakes State, Mama Monica's voice pushed me to understand something that doesn't make a lot of sense to a 14-year-old. Many of the residents of Michigan's largest cities struggle to access clean water. Once a week, hundreds of cars line up for bottled water at the Greater Holy Temple Church of God in Flint. You know you're too old to be driving. Come on. Less than a decade ago, the Flint water crisis made headlines as one of the worst public health failures of our time. In the majority black city, 100,000 residents were exposed to lead over the course of several years. After the emergency manager, an official appointed by state government with almost absolute power over the local government, took control in 2011 and switched water sources to the heavily polluted Flint River, lead levels spiked from corroding pipes and the water started turning brown and smelling foul. Residents gave repeated warnings but were ignored by the state emergency manager and Federal Environmental Protection Agency for over a year, leading dozens to die from a Legionnaire's disease outbreak. parents in Flint. What lasting damage did the water do to their kids? As we first reported in March, her initial findings were worse than she feared. But we begin with the legacy of Flint's The full health toll from the lead exposure will continue to be seen over the next several decades as the kids who grew up drinking that water grow older. 
to a serious lead water crisis in Benton Harbor, Michigan. That's a predominantly black city three hours from Flint. People are under orders not to use the tap water because of high levels of lead from old pipes. And as CBS's Omar Villafranca... Last year, another water crisis in a Michigan-majority black city made headlines across the nation. Benton Harbor, like Flint, has had its population cut in half since the 60s and experienced half a decade of emergency management. During that half decade, the emergency manager fired half of the staff at the water treatment plant and never rehired anybody. From 2018 to 2021, state, federal, and local government sat by as the problem got worse, giving residents no information or guidance on the unsafe water. After three years of lead exposure with no action, it will be years before we understand the full devastation of the health consequences. Sound familiar? The state started distributing free bottled water to the city's nearly 10,000 residents. There's no urgency with the federal government. There's At no this point, just about everyone in Michigan knows about Flint's lead crisis. But in Detroit, there's been another, more silent crisis. The widespread, harsh practice of shutting off water to homes who are only slightly behind on their bill, often for extended periods of time, and with drastic consequences on the families who call the city home. This is a story of what happens when structural racism, disinvestment, and local and state policy decisions align to cut off the water of 141,000 people in the Great Lakes state's largest city. But more than that, it's a story about how we have created the conditions for widespread failure in disinvested cities and then act with shock and disdain when their local structures fail. This is a project about what happens when larger governments leave local ones to find solutions after failure. My name is Evan Kanji, and this is all of the water in the world and none of it to drink. In Detroit in 2014, in the shadow of bankruptcy and emergency management, the city water department began shutting off people's water if they were behind on their bill by as little as two months or $150. I met Daniqua Robinson in a small library on the far edge of southwest Detroit, just off Werner. This part of the neighborhood hasn't started to gentrify yet, and you can feel the thick factory air from neighboring Delray blanket the vibrant local businesses. How long have you lived in Southwest Detroit? My life. Born and raised? Mm-hmm. Oh, on the other side of the bridge, though. I went to high, Southwestern High School, graduated yeah. from Southwestern. Yeah. My mother graduated from there in the 50s, so this is my, this is my heart, Southwest mm-hmm. Detroit. Mr. Nequa is one of those people who seems to know everyone and do everything. She called herself a community mother, and after a few minutes, I could start to see why. But I'm a community mother. I have children of all backgrounds. Yeah. I'm so proud of that. So one of my babies, his name is Hussein. Hussein? Hussein. And I met him so long ago. I love Hussein. I tell my kids about Hussein. They're like, Mom, what? They're like, he don't exist. I said, yes, he do. They used to work at school on <laughs> seven miles. Hussein is my baby. We were at Walmart one day, and it was so funny. He saw me. He screamed Miss Daniqua rents the home where her and her family lives. And right now, the landlords put her in a really tough spot. 
My current living situation is unhappy. Property owner, management company that owns the house that I'm in, slumlords. I won't even name them yet because I'm one of five complaints, but mm -hmm. terrible. I have squirrels in my attic, birds in my kitchen, in the, in the wall. And I told them about that years ago. They never did anything about it. Time to go. Time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go. And I just found out within a year that I was not responsible for my sewerage bill. Yeah. Oh, the landlord was passing yes. the bill on all me. this time, all this time, and still doing it. Water bills in Detroit work differently than in a lot of cities. Instead of being connected to individual people, they're connected to physical properties, which means that for people who are renting these physical properties, there isn't real information on what's happening with their water access. Have you ever had your water shut off before? Yes, I have. Okay. It's very painful because I'm a mother of five yeah. that I gave birth to, but I'm a community mother. It was cut off for a day. I got it right back on. Mm -mm. That was horrible. It's, it's really debilitating and degrading mm -hmm. to have things over your head. Yeah. If you can't afford to pay where you live, you can't afford to pay the utilities either. So. Did they give you any notice before or did it just, just cut it off? Just cut it off. Wow. So I'm like, okay, that'll never happen again. So I think back in those days, if you went to rent a house, the landlord didn't even tell you how things went. You paid the landlord. I didn't make that payment. So it wasn't in my name because it wasn't coming directly to me. But to lose, you lose your utilities, your lights, your gas, your water, even with a power outage, <laughs> you know you just paid your bill. That does something to you. The mental toll of having your water shut off is much deeper than the physical realities of not having access to running water. Many of the people I spoke with mentioned the sense of shame about their situation. The next day, I spoke with Barbara Jones, an elderly West Side resident, the day after I put up a flyer at her neighborhood rec center. Miss Barbara, about how long was your water shut off for? About two months. Wow, that's a really long shutoff. Mm -hmm. Where did you get water from during that? Well, I got water from my neighbor. He just used the hose, water hose. Wow. Would you say that's a pretty common way for people to support each other when they have their water, their water shut off? And some of my neighbors have had even had their gas and, you know, lights cut off and everything. But, you know, I mean, being over here and us working together, we try to, you know, help each other, I, I would say. Other than your neighbors, were there any places you, you turned for support? Yes. And what did you, how did you feel about the process of trying to, trying to access that support if you did try to use some of it? It's, it looks bad. And then, you know, you have to reach out and try to find agencies or, you know, welfare or whatever, for filling out papers and what have you, and taking a long time, you know, going through things to try to, you know, try to get, you, get to what you need. Wow. So while you were going through that whole, that whole process to try and get, to try and get government support. What would you what would you do? Like what what was your mindset at that point? Just kind of figuring it out for my on my own until I just had to drop my pride. Sometimes you don't you don't you know you you don't want to be asking people's for you know government for help and different things. You know you feel you can do it on your own. For years, the water department would indiscriminately shut off the water for people behind on their bills. This included elders like Miss Barbara, as well as families with young kids. 
Day, now a mother of four, still remembers the time her family's water was shut off when she was just in middle school. I remember the water not coming on and having to go to my cousins or whoever's house to bathe and things like that. We ate out a lot, so we didn't have dishes to wash. It was wintertime. She collected water, like the snow, and then she would put it on the stove for us to, you know, if we needed water to clean stuff or whatever. But yeah, yeah for us to bathe and stuff, we would go to people's houses. Do you, do you remember how long it lasted for? Mm, maybe a few weeks. What was it like to like go through that, like alone, like just your family? I would say it was, it's sad, but I don't really, I wouldn't really say I felt any kind of way other than embarrassed if I was to tell someone else because I knew it wasn't right. But we had went through other hardships, you know, we had lived without electricity before we had, you know, lived without other things before. So it was like, okay, this is what we're going through now. So we deal with it until we don't have to deal with it. Today, Day and other residents continue to struggle with the cost of keeping the water on in their homes. How much is your how much is your water bill now? It's about a hundred dollars a month. It's just a lot. It's a lot. And they, they they always say that they have it's help out here, it's help out here. But you have to jump through so many hoops just to get the minimal amount of help. It's just like, why? Why even try? Day isn't alone. Even after adjusting for inflation, water costs have tripled over the last four decades in Detroit, according to a University of Michigan study. In 1980, a typical family's Detroit water bill would cost $300 in today's money. By 2018, those costs had ballooned to $900 for a typical family in a year. That's over one and a half times as much as what a family in Michigan's second largest city, majority white Grand Rapids, would typically pay. And while water costs have increased everywhere, these increases fell hardest on already poor and disinvested urban areas. These high costs carry extreme consequences for low-income families. Like something people would talk about? No. No. I definitely didn't tell anybody that. No. I would wait till I went to school to brush my teeth. So... Just go to the bathroom, go go to school early before anyone. Go to the bathroom, brush my teeth, you know, wash my face, and then go to class. Aside from the immediate mental consequences of shutoffs, there are huge impacts on physical health. The ability to access basic sanitation easily is strongly related to the spread of disease, not just for an individual family, but for a whole community. A Duke University analysis showed that during the pandemic, water shutoff moratoria reduced COVID deaths by 7.5%, even after accounting for a whole variety of other public health interventions. But on top of this, shutoffs risk a family's most basic right, the ability to keep custody of their own kids. Remember how Wade said that when she was a kid and her water got shut off, she wouldn't tell anyone? Me not telling anyone was, didn't have anything to do with the water department. It was more so I didn't want to get my mom in trouble. In Detroit, children are frequently taken from their parents by CPS 
in the immediate aftermath of a water shutoff. While there aren't great numbers on how many families this has happened to in Detroit, it's not an uncommon occurrence. I personally know a mother, a former coworker of mine, who had to fight tooth and nail to keep her kids after having her water shut off. Community organizations were the ones to step up and deliver water to these mothers so that they would not lose their children, usually buying water from their own pockets or from donations to deliver. We would deliver water in the middle of the night to like single mothers who had kids and their water was shut off and they were in jeopardy of losing their kids. So we did, we did that for a long time, still do that if it need to happen. That's Valerie Jean Blakey, a shutoffs activist we'll hear a little bit more from later. Child Protective Services claims that a water shutoff would not be the sole cause for removal from a home, but rather a factor in the decision. Activists cited across the media dispute that. Like Day alluded to earlier, parents make sure their kids know not to let anything slip. But on top of losing kids, the shutoff crisis contributed to many families losing their homes. Water debt piled onto an already escalating foreclosure crisis in Detroit. Many cities place unpaid bills as tax liens on homes, which leads them to losing their property. In Detroit, this practice became widespread, and it dovetailed with the punitiveness of other municipal practices. From 2008 to 2020, one in three homes in Detroit was lost to foreclosure. The vast majority of those came in the four-year period between 2011 and 2015, when one in four homes was foreclosed on. Widespread foreclosures were initiated during the recession, with the city short on cash, property values were routinely overassessed, homes were overtaxed, and when residents couldn't keep up, they lost their homes. These practices intensified in the run-up to and aftermath of bankruptcy, and to this day, there hasn't been any sort of redress for families whose homes were illegally overassessed. Home foreclosures and water shutoffs have a lot in common. They both act as ways to squeeze additional revenue from low-income residents, with drastic consequences for those same residents. But more than that, these crises fed each other. When homes had large unpaid water bills, their water debt piled on top of the property tax debt. In Detroit in 2014, the average foreclosed home had nearly $2,000 in water debt added to its property taxes, nearly 15% of the average taxes due. For Mama Monica, along with many of the other folks I spoke with, these practices are linked in a way that makes it hard to talk about one without talking about the other. We know you cannot dwell in a home without adequate plumbing and sanitation and access to running water. And as you look at housing and the housing stock of the city, you've seen over 100,000 homeowners lose their homes because of illegal and unaffordable taxes. Right. But what gets left out of that is how many of them up until 2015 lost their homes, not because of property taxes, but because of the debt with water debt that got commingled with property taxes. And that debt is not separated out. When it gets transferred from the city to the county, the county commingles it all together as just property tax debt. Whereas we know state law says that you're not supposed to lose your property because of water debt. That if they can be dissolved at the, the sale of the property, then you know, they're selling homes, turn around selling them for sixteen, twenty thousand dollars, and the water debt may be fifteen hundred dollars. Well, you're supposed to give the homeowner the difference of that sale. 
after the water is addressed. They're not doing that. Right. So all of those things are really redispersing and capturing black wealth and then redistributing it to a younger, whiter population or selling it off to those that are doing massive land buys and land swaps. So either way, it's still a, a weapon where water is, is being used as a weapon of gentrification and displacement. And when shutoffs and foreclosures are talked about in the media, this is where the story usually ends. A majority black city, and to a lesser extent the county that houses it, beats up on its own residents to balance its budget. A shame. Terrible. But not something people outside the city really see themselves as having much to do with, other than maybe providing charity or feeling grateful to live in the suburbs. And so for many people like me, who grew up in the suburbs. Detroit shutoffs are horrible and a shame, but also something we can very much engage with on our own terms. And that's the problem. Because without the suburbs, and without the intentional actions of bigger governments over the last several generations, there would be no water crisis in Detroit, or Flint, or Bennett Harbor. Bernadette Atuahini, who's a leading scholar activist around the foreclosure crisis in Detroit, Put it like this. First, various factors plowed the city and its residents down, creating vulnerability. Second, on this fertile ground, legal and governance failures sowed seeds that eventually sprouted predation. By only highlighting governance failures without a vulnerability analysis that underscores the background factors at play, onlookers could wrongly assume that Detroit got into this mess all by itself. Michael Mascarenas, an academic who's writing a book on race, governance, and the water crises in Detroit and Flint, put it a little more blunt. A lot of people look to Detroit and they go, look at, you know, mismanagement, look at the misuse, the criminalized, you know, the mayor's a, cr- a, cr- a criminal. But what you're not seeing over this 50, 60 year period are welfare policies, right, of government in terms of housing and public infrastructure that privileged white lives, right? white suburban lives and privatized government functions in, 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 in particular ways, right? That undermine Detroit's tax base and its ability to afford and control its, its own infrastructure eventually. In other words, this predation wasn't just on the city. It was the natural outgrowth of policy and decision designed to prioritize the white suburbs at the expense of the black city. But what are the background reasons behind this vulnerability? The suburbs, almost as much written about as Madison Avenue, and just as much in need of reflection. Disgruntled? Heck no. They're glad to be here. Remember? From 1950 to 2000, Detroit's overall population decreased from 1.8 million to just over 600,000. And so they joined the stream of family life in the suburbs. Much of the narrative around how this happens centers the role of the 1967 uprisings in accelerating white flight. The truth is, though, Detroit's population shrinkage began two decades before. Population in the city peaked in 1950, before huge declines in manufacturing jobs and before the uprisings that so many blame for the departure of white residents for the suburbs. And when people talk about the decline in the auto industry as a reason behind the population and wealth declines in Detroit, what they miss is that the metro area as a whole 
has had a relatively stable population, oscillating between 4 and 3.5 million for the last 50 years, according to the UN. We have been led to believe that racial segregation in housing was de facto segregation, by accident or the result of private prejudices. Yes, private prejudice clearly contributed to segregation, but by itself it could not have segregated the country without the intention of the federal government to segregate neighborhoods throughout the nation. If, however, we understand the accurate history, the history that was once well known, but we've all now forgotten, that racially segregated patterns in every metropolitan area like St. Louis were created by de jure segregation, Racially explicit policy on the part of federal, state, and local governments designed to segregate metropolitan areas, then we can understand that we have an unconstitutional residential landscape. The departure of white people from the core city to the suburbs was a process heavily driven and influenced by government policy at all levels, and with broad-reaching impacts on the cities they left behind. Federal home loans in the suburbs, the easiest way for a family to quickly build wealth, were only available to white families. The state routed highways through centers of black wealth and homeownership, like Paradise Valley in Detroit, and pushed the residents into public housing. Neighborhoods were heavily redlined to limit mobility for black families and concentrate wealth and poverty in different areas. Federal requirements around housing segregation and federally funded developments led one developer in the northwestern corner of Detroit to build a six-foot-tall wall to isolate his development, all white to meet the requirements of federal funding from the neighboring black community. It wasn't just Detroit, either. Flint's population plummeted from the peak of 197,000 in 1960 to 81,000 in 2020. In the 60s alone, fully half of Benton Harbor's white population moved out. In 2020, the 9,700 total residents are half of the 19,000 that there were in 1960. With populations sliced in half and wealth in all of these cities dropping, their budgets never had a chance to keep up with the needs of aging infrastructure. An author named Thomas Sugru detailed the racial animosity in Detroit before suburbanization in his book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. Up through the post-World War II period, Detroit was deeply segregated by race. Black families could only live in a few neighborhoods, and white residents defended the boundaries of those neighborhoods by force. In 1925, for example, a black doctor by the name of Ossian Sweet moved into an all-white neighborhood on the east side of Detroit. Racist mobs gathered outside of his house. They burned crosses, hurled rocks. In 1942, when a mixed-race housing project was built in an all-white neighborhood, riots from the white neighbors injured 40. According to Sugru, what the push by the federal government to fund the construction of segregated suburbs did was to give the whole process some more structure. Before, racial segregation was couched in home loans and informal residential boundaries upheld by real estate agents. But now, the governmentally defended boundaries of suburbs kept black core cities separate from white places like Warren and Bloomfield Hills outside Detroit, St. Joseph outside Benna Harbor, and Flushing outside Flint. To this day, the city of Gross Point routinely blocks roads on the border with the east side of Detroit with barriers, both more formal, like trees and large pots spread across the road, 
or informal, like piling all the snow from the road into a giant wall that separates the cities. These new governmental boundaries transformed a racial animosity into something easier for governments to uphold in a post-civil rights era. Regional animosity, a city pitted against its suburbs. I remember when I was 17 years old, I was waiting for a bus in downtown Detroit, back to my home. I met an older man from Pontiac and we started talking. He was born in Detroit, but he claimed that this was his first time back in the city limits in 50 years, since the day his family moved. When I was talking to Michael, the academic we spoke with earlier, about his experiences interviewing folks for his book, he shared similar stories of the way the region became divided. People who had left Detroit, people who had vacated the city, you know, they would brag, oh, I haven't been to Detroit in 11 years, right? There was a real kind of antagonism. As the suburbs continued to expand outwards, though, they ran into a problem. They needed water and a sewer system. But many of the fledging municipalities didn't have the capacity to fund their own. Instead, they used their collective political muscle to get onto the Detroit system at bargain rates, at a cost to the city. As the system gets larger, as it continues to build itself out and, and provide water and sewage service to mostly white communities, right, suburban white communities, what, what they should have done, what typically is the model is, is you would you would do a couple of things. You could annex communities from outside, right? So that's what LA did when they, they would annex these communities and then they would get the taxes from those communities in order to, to further pay for infrastructure. Or you can do the New York case where you can just take water from like the Adirondacks, right? But you're still figuring out a way to provide infrastructure through some sort of tax incentive. And it was very early on because of that antagonism in Southeast Michigan that the counties, the rural counties were not going to get annexed, first of all, because people left there, they left Detroit, we don't want to be any part of Detroit. Counties got together and tried to sue the city of Detroit or the, or the Detroit Water and Sewage Department about six or seven times over, you know, in, in the 90s alone. But also folks like, you know, Brooksy e. Patterson, Oakland, Oakland guy and, and others really wanted to wrestle control away from Detroit. So they weren't about to contribute to the water through taxation or annexation. So they demanded that the DWSD take out loans. So instead of actually getting these folks in the areas, rural areas to pay for the services, the city was taking out more and more and more loans, right? Mama Monica put it a little more bluntly. The state to continue to use us to extract wealth to subsidize and balance the budget of the rest of the state, which they've done. We've been subsidizing the state on water since 1955. And they know it. They've been knowing since then it would drive us into bankruptcy. And when you go back and look at Judge Fikens, it's just like, that's another place that we can talk about the truth. From the late 1970s until 2014, Detroit did not control the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department. It was under a federal court overseership from a judge by the name of John Fikens, a federal judge who continued to put more and more power in the hands of DWSD's suburban customers. In 1999, for example, Fikens signed an order requiring that 83% of the costs of new sewer construction in the suburbs be covered by city residents, 
effectively caving to over a decade of lawsuits from suburban municipalities to put more of the regional costs on the city. In other words, this basically forced the city, even with its disproportionate tax burdens and history of disinvestment, to subsidize the suburbs. It's not like this wasn't clear to the Detroit city managers in the 50s and 60s, right? One of the, the department managers, Lawrence Lenhard, in, in the 50s said, look, if we don't continue to ask suburban areas to pay for the infrastructure we're building, we're gonna have to do this through debt financing and we're gonna, we're gonna have a problem. Another blow came in 2003, when the state slashed a key source of funding from disadvantaged cities and their infrastructure. Michigan is something called statutory revenue sharing to cities, which basically distributes sales tax money to cities that have more people during the day than live there. In other words, cities where people commute in from the suburbs, like Detroit, Flint, and Benna Harbor. The state chose to use this funding to fill holes in the state budget instead. Cities across the state lost $8.6 billion between 2001 and 2018. This disproportionately impacted already disadvantaged communities. Detroit alone lost $720 million of funding during that time. And Benna Harbor's loss was equal to the deficit they had that triggered emergency management. The consequences of these processes on Detroit's ability to sustain its infrastructure and public services were drastic. From 1970, the first year with available data, to 2012, the year before bankruptcy. Total tax revenue in the city of Detroit was nearly sliced in half when adjusted for inflation. And in these numbers, the legacy of disinvestment is clear. Property tax revenue was 4.5 times lower in 2012 than 1970. Income tax revenue was 1.3 times lower, lining up with the subsidized departure of quality housing and good jobs. And while the city tried to patch gaps with new revenue streams, including fees added to utility bills that then fed the city's general fund, it couldn't stem the tide started by a policy vision centered around dismantling cities like it. With water, the need was made even greater by the federal government taking its hands off its traditional role in supporting water infrastructure. In the 1970s, federal funding accounted for a little more than 30% of what we spent on water infrastructure. Today, is just 4%. As the nation's water infrastructure continues to age, utilities are projected to have $1 trillion in costs for infrastructure replacement in the next 25 years nationwide. And the need for investment is far greater than the available money. In the suburbs, though, these systemic roots usually aren't what gets talked about. Anna Clark wrote a book called The Poison City about the Flint water crisis and grew up across the river from Benna Harbor in a mostly white beach town called St. Joseph. When I spoke to her, she told me about how people in her hometown would often look at the struggles of Benna Harbor as rooted in dysfunction in the city versus as a product of broader structural factors. Anytime something happens, including the water crisis in Benna Harbor, it gets real easy for people to, like me as a teenager, individualize it and be like, oh, well, I guess the city council just isn't doing what they should be doing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And we can see right before our eyes, like there's other factors in play. 
So yeah. anyway, that's that's it's that's a long a long answer. But yeah, it's very interesting. They are very interesting towns, and the fact that there isn't a lot of a ton of reporters or a lot of news outlets in that area, I think they don't get. It doesn't always. It sort of gets covered when there's incidences right. like this, and not always the kind of maybe constant scrutiny that might be helpful in moving things forward. And here's the thing too: is like kind of like with Flint and NSF too. Like sometimes there really are issues with like local leadership and stuff. Like right. there there are issues. You know, I don't want to like be completely completely wash that away. You know, like there's there are like. There is a, like a, a, some parochialism, parochialism, however you say that word out loud. Um, <laughs> like people, for all kinds of really rational reasons, don't trust outsiders, don't like of any skin color, you know, like, 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 like we have a lot of, you know, intimate ties and like, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a lot of, there, there has been issues with like people who haven't been like local leaders who have like not done the right thing. There, there is some of that, but like people magnify it as like people like lean on stuff, like tales of this kind of thing as sort of to give them, I think, an excuse mm. <laughs> not to or not do their part. Many people from the suburbs share this mindset. It makes sense. It's what we're taught. It's defined media coverage of struggles across Michigan's largest cities. The glorified pride in our past history mixes with the friction and deep divides between our cities and their suburbs. Underneath it all, we have the racial undercurrents that Anna mentioned. The willingness with which we point to the failures of black leadership without acknowledging the structures that put those cities in that position in the first place. More than anything else, though, this mindset was responsible for Michigan's most famous policy when it comes to our water crises. Emergency management. The Kwame Kilpatrick embezzlement scandal was just a few years before Detroit had an emergency manager installed. Here's Michael. This constant rhetoric and, and reporting in the media around you know, lawsuits and cases of mismanagement, Kilpatrick. You know, he was kind of in this in this case of uh, rafting. And so that becomes, you know, the dominant narrative. Detroit's corrupt, you know, Flint's corrupt, and, and these places are corrupt. Under Public Act 4 of 2011, state-installed emergency managers could take over any and all authority from local governments, unilaterally renegotiate union contracts, fire any city employee, sell utilities and city property, and generally have zero checks on their power to balance the city's budget. In 2012, Voters successfully repealed the law in a statewide vote, but within a month, the legislature repassed the law with the specification that it couldn't be overturned by a referendum. Across the state, the law worked to remove local representation from black residents. So these kind of dog whistle politics, they weren't using race, but they were using financial mismanagement, the pathology of black and brown households, blight. They were using all these terms, these kind of interesting color-coded words. Usurp the, the, the authority of local government through emergency management. By 2014, fully 50% of the black residents of Michigan lived under emergency management, with effectively no local democratic representation. Of the eight cities statewide that experienced emergency management, seven were majority black. Emergency management in Michigan gained national notoriety in the aftermath of the Flint water crisis. There, 
the emergency manager circumvented a public vote on switching off of Detroit's water supply and building their own, instead making the decision unilaterally. He not only set in motion the water crisis there, but he also put the city over its legal debt limit and caused water rates there to spike to the highest in the nation. In Detroit, there was a similar pattern. This is the time for us not to argue or to blame, but to come together as Detroit, Michigan, not Detroit versus Michigan. Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan then Governor Rick Snyder installed emergency manager Kevin Orr in March of 2013. National correspondent Monica Davey covers the Midwest and joins me now on the phone from Detroit. Monica, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Is this a takeover? One of the official purposes of emergency management was to allow drastic, unpopular measures to be taken unilaterally, ostensibly for the city's own good. The idea was that he was going to bring financial reform to all people of color, and he's going to take it from Motown to your town kind of thing, right? And Kevin Orr did just that. It was emergency manager Orr who initiated DWSD's most harsh off policy, the one that sparked crisis. Months earlier, Orr plunged Detroit into the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history. The bankruptcy itself wasn't necessarily the problem. Detroit was in a lot of debt, some from financial mismanagement, most from the realities of having to support large amounts of infrastructure in a disinvested city. However, the bankruptcy that Orr negotiated essentially forced the city to sell its assets on the cheap. It was a way in which you could grab land you could, on the cheap, you could grab water on the cheap, you could privatize resources. It was kind of like what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Right? It wasn't a, sh a natural shock, but it was a financial shock. One of those resources ended up being the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department. All suburban services previously provided by DWSD were now to be provided by the Great Lakes Water Authority, or GLIWA a regional authority controlled primarily by suburban counties with limited representation from the city of Detroit. For activists like Mama Monica, you can't talk about the shutoff crisis without talking about this history too. I often love to tell people when, when the city of Detroit ran its own water department, we never poisoned anybody. Take a lot of pride in that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and now a lot of times when you hear anything negative, even out of Flint, They'll say DWSD when it wasn't Detroit, it was the emergency manager of Detroit. So I often have to correct that narrative. Because even in us telling our own stories, sometimes we will use language that actually is misrepresenting what the truth is. No, Detroit didn't do this. Emergency managers under the control of Governor Snyder and austerity did this. You don't even have to go back 40, 50, 100 years to calculate what would bring about systemic change. If we just looked at an equitable rate structure for the Bleedwood deal. For decades, different suburban power brokers had been filing lawsuits and proposing bills in the state legislature to regionalize the Detroit Water Department. Without the regional system that DWSD built and the capital and debt that the city of Detroit invested in it, the suburbs never could have been built. But after the system already existed, the suburbs wanted control. Now, with the city under the shadow of emergency management, they got their chance. Gliwa leased the Detroit regional system from the city for 50 years, without the consent of an elected representative for the city since it was under emergency management. 
They took over DWSD's ability to treat water and sell it wholesale to suburban authorities, pocketing the revenue from this process for itself, while leaving Detroit with the legacy debt from building out the system. All DWSD was left with was the ability to sell water, sold wholesale to it by Gliwa, to individuals within the city limits. According to a report published by the Haas Center at the University of California, Berkeley, the Gliwa deal had four key impacts. It created an additional financial drain on the city. It legally codified informal structures that benefited the suburbs financially and limited their contributions to affordability in the city. It failed to recognize the historical role of Detroit in building out the regional system and it removed representation and control from the city without the consent of an elected representative. Financially, the Gliwa deal took advantage of the city's precarious position in 2014 to lease the regional water system from the city at a bargain rate. Right now you've got the Haas report that shows that we, Gliwa should be paying the residents of Detroit somewhere in the ballpark of about $215 million annually for leasing our water infrastructure system and we're only getting a little bit more than $33 million. Gliwa isn't just a financial drain on the city and its residents. It's a continuation of the trend started during Judge Fikin's oversight and further during emergency management, where authority and decision-making power over the city's assets are taken over by suburban governments. For example, that 83-17 split we talked about earlier where Detroit residents were forced to pay for 83% of the costs of new sewer systems in the suburbs, Gliwa solidified that as a policy. And despite being a regional system, the way that Gliwa is structured severely limits the amount the suburbs pay into affordability programs in the city. Despite the city still carrying much of the debt load from building out the system in the first place, only 0.5% of Gliwa's budget goes towards water relief. I think in terms of, oh, people's access in this city, mm -hmm. we should not have built a, a system that's providing water to 40% of the population and then we're struggling to get access to it. And right now, Glee was only willing to commit, what, 0.5% of their overall budget toward water relief. Right. When we know for a fact that right now across the state, you've got about $250 million in arrears. But what often gets advocates talking the most is how the structure of Gliwa underrepresents the city given its historical role in building the system and how it ties into the stolen representation of emergency management. This is Victoria Long. Victoria works on state-level policy advocacy on water justice issues in Michigan as we the people of Detroit's policy manager. And but the problem is, one, there is no will necessarily on DWS, DWSD's side and the, the, the board governing the system as a whole Detroit does not have proper and adequate representation. It is it is mostly majority suburban representation. And of course, that is a so that's why we the people of Detroit often is very hesitant and wary about folks talking about consolidation. Consolidation is uh, spoken a lot about in a lot of other circles. And it's not it, it makes sense to some extent, but that is where we come from when we're when we think about consolidation is what happens to representation, what happens to the community that gets engulfed, if for lack of a better word, into, into a larger system. It's like balancing your own autonomy and your own voice versus like the broader financial picture of like getting suburban money into the utility. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And for we the people of Detroit, the first one wins. Oh yes, yes, sure. absolutely. And and we're also looking into, I mean, just the effect not only here but any city that was under emergency management during the time. You can see those impacts and effects playing out still. This century of policy decisions, from federally and state subsidized white flight to federal oversight of the water department to state revenue sharing and federal water infrastructure funding getting slashed, to the era of emergency management in the Great Lakes Water Authority, have continuously disinvested from the city, both as a whole and from its water infrastructure in particular. It's no wonder the city is short on funds. And while this doesn't justify the punitive harms of shutoffs, it does put them in context. As Bernadette Atuahini argued with foreclosures, it was ultimately factors outside the city, pushed on by the interests and power of the suburbs and their residents, that sowed the seeds for this to happen. But the affected communities haven't been passive observers in any of this. Hi, Ms. Valerie, how you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. My name's Evan, I was a, a friend of Reverend Summers. How's your Friday going? I'm good. I, it's been a busy couple weeks because we've been organizing against water shutoffs. So it's been a couple weeks. What have, what have you been organizing? We did uh, an MLK day and a mass demonstration the day after. And we packed the Board of Water Commissioners stuff on Wednesday. And then and we have an ongoing lawsuit, so we're meeting, we're organizing. The next action is Monday, the 23rd, at the federal courthouse here in Detroit. I'm making media as we speak. So my history with the People's Water Board and the fight for affordable water here in Detroit really is, it goes back to 2013, 2014, we bought a house here on the North End in 2010, and by 2013, we couldn't afford our utility bills or our water bill. It was just uh, none of our utility bills. We were in dire crisis. In 2014, we or in the winter of 2013-2014, we had our first polar vortex. We were without water because our pipes bust. Our bills were out of this world we couldn't afford them and then so in we we actually organized 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 stop those shutoffs every day they would shut off whole neighborhoods at a time it was really really bad by the time it got to my house january 17th and they said they tried to shut my water off i it was like six o'clock in the morning i went out i stood over my thing and I told them they couldn't shut my water off, but they had already shut off a block and a half before me. And then once I stopped them from doing my water shut off, they went down and shut everybody off in a three block radius. I was the only one with water, wow. set up water station. And it was the hardest probably three weeks of my life. After about three weeks, we got everybody turned back on with just a mass protest in the streets and, and shutting things down. and and being able to do community aid and, and have everybody, you know, fed, to be able to carry five gallons of water is almost impossible for somebody to do on a bus and things like that. So we went, we started delivering water. And there was a, the main thing that we were worried about and throughout all these years, we've, we've had 
houses we we set up which was all manned by women we would deliver water in the middle of the night to like single mothers who had kids and their water was shut off and they were in jeopardy of losing their kids so we did we did that for a long time still do that if it need to happen at this point in time it's over upwards of over 200,000 homes that have had their water shut off and went and went through these just really really terrible times um And just the worst things imaginable. What does it take for an institution to rebuild trust among its residents after a decade of harm? What does it look like to move forward in a way that recognizes that harm and works towards a more equitable future? How does past history impact the implementation of a promising solution today? And what needs around water in the community in Detroit remain unmet? And what do people see as the way forward? During the COVID-19 pandemic, Detroit put in place a shutoff moratorium. After two years, they lifted it at the start of 2023. In its place, they started a new program called the Lifeline Plan. At its best, the Lifeline Plan is the realization of community demands over the last 10 years. At its worst, it's a shorter term play to placate the anger towards the water department and restart shutoffs. In our next episode, we'll talk about the decades-old broken trust between the water department and the community, and the role that the suburbs and bigger governments have played in stoking it. This is all of the water in the world, and none of it to drink. Throughout this podcast, there's a couple things you can do to support the ongoing work on this issue. First and foremost, you can donate to We the People of Detroit at their website, wethepeopleofdetroit.com, to support direct water relief for affected individuals. And if you're wondering what role we can play in pushing the state and federal government for policy to support addressing this issue on a deeper level, we'll talk about that and some action steps more in our last episode.